Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In today's episode, I interview psychotherapist, best-selling author and in-demand speaker Amy Moran on the 13 things mentally strong people don't do, the things mentally strong parents don't do and things mentally strong women don't do. Amy shares some great tips and strategies you can apply to your everyday life to help you clean up your mental mess. Before we begin, I want to tell you something I'm so excited about. You can now pre-order my new book, 101 Ways to Be Less Stressed. This book is packed with simple self-care strategies to help boost your mind, mood and mental health. Right now, when you pre-order, you can get 20% off. This book is great for holidays and birthdays or simply just for yourself. Just go to drleaf.com for more details and to order. The link will also be in the show notes. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. And now on to today's podcast. Amy Moran, welcome to the studio. I'm so excited to meet you finally and to talk to you and about your amazing approach to life. I love it. Well, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I love I love the fact that you just told me just before we started that you live on a sailboat. So please tell my viewers that you are on a sailboat right now. That is so cool. I am. So I spend most of the year living on a sailboat. A few years ago, I was living in rural Maine and it was cold and dark and I became an author, so I didn't have to like live right in one place. I could live wherever I wanted. So it occurred to us, let's go do something fun. So we moved to a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Oh my gosh, what a difference from Maine to the Florida Keys. I mean, totally, that's like, you know, chalk and cheese in terms of weather. <laughs> exactly. So I have to say there's worse places to be right now than, than on a boat in the Keys. <laughs> exactly. I think you're in the right place at the moment. So that's really amazing. Yeah. So do you do a lot of sailing around the world or do you... For the most part, we just stay here because the truth is I'm working a lot. I do a lot of Zoom calls, that sort of a thing, close to airports for travel and stuff like that. So we don't go on a lot of long trips, but we take short trips to go snorkeling and visit coral reefs and that sort of a thing. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. What a lovely outlet. That's amazing. Get away from the craziness of life. and exactly. into Oh, that's what beautiful. Before we dive in, can you tell us that if I hold up my phone, I've got questions on my phone, (laughs) the questions for you. Can you tell my audience a little bit about you? What's not in your bio? That's okay. We heard about the sailboat. That's not in your bio, but just a little bit about you. What's in your bio? What motivates you to do what you do and to keep doing what you're doing? 
Sure. So I'm a therapist by trade and taught psychology classes in college and was working as a therapist, wrote the article called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Do, went viral, became an author. So I spend a lot of my time writing and speaking now and talking about mental strength. And I guess what motivates me is the emails and the feedback I get from people. My first book is in 39 languages. So I get readers who will email me from all quarters of the world saying, hey, thank you so much for writing this book. And that's what fuels me to keep going. As long as people have questions about mental strength or as long as they want to know about psychology, I'm happy to keep talking about it. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really wonderful. Well, you just wrote the book. You wrote the book. Hey, I've got to get this because you've written three different versions of this, of um, the 13 things mentally strong people can do. But let's talk about that. The first one, you wrote a great book called 13 things mentally, mentally strong people don't do. Tell us about that book. So, you know, of course, people want to know, why would you write about what not to do? Exactly. Focusing on the negative, but it caught my attention. Right. And so as a therapist, I was taught to build on people's strengths. When they come into my office, I was told, figure out what they're doing well and tell them to keep doing more of that. But, you know, at some point in my career, I thought, well, I'm doing people a disservice if I don't point out that maybe just one or two bad habits are keeping them stuck. And the only way I can explain it is this, is if I went to see a personal trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill and I kept doing that, I'd hope to see some progress. But if they didn't tell me to quit eating so much junk food, I, I might not, or I might, after I got done running, I might eat a dozen jelly donuts and then not know that I'm just outdoing all of the hard work I just did. So it became clear to me that, okay, if I want to help people make progress, then it's okay to point out, hey, you have this one or two bad habits and they're keeping you stuck. They're holding you back. It's counterproductive to all the hard work that you're doing. And, you know, when I first started as a therapist, I thought, oh, this is great. I have all this information I learned in college, and I'm going to tell these people what I learned from textbooks, never imagining how much I did myself. And I went through a series of losses in my life. My mother passed away. My husband passed away. My father-in-law passed away. And throughout that journey, I just became really interested in mental strength from a personal standpoint. And I started studying the people that came into my office because I wanted to know how come some people went through hard times and they got stuck and other people went through hard times and they really flourished and they grew from it. And when I, the more I studied people, the more I realized it wasn't always about what they did. Sometimes it was more about what they didn't do. And so that's what led me to write the so book that about the, yeah. yeah. That birth of book. I know you we're looking at your bio and, and your, just your story. You were very young as you were widowed very young. I was, I was 26 and Gosh. I passed away from a heart attack. I'm so sorry. You have mm. a heart attack when you're 26. Yeah, very. And it was, you know, very similar to the way that my mother, my mother had passed away from a brain aneurysm. And so she was here one minute and gone the next with no warning, no nothing. And was that close to your husband dying? Was, so it was three years to the day. That oh, my, gosh. Then my husband dies of a heart attack. Same thing. He had no history of known heart issues. Oh, my gosh. And was completely healthy one minute and gone the next. And so what it did to me to, to lose two people in really sudden and unexpected ways. It was tough to wrap my brain around it. I felt like I was just grieving for a whole decade. Shame. That's terrible. And then you said your father-in-law passed as well? Right. And so, you know, it was a few years down the road. I had sort of started to rebuild my life. I got remarried and got a new house, a new job. Life's looking pretty good. My father-in-law gets diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, at first they said, oh, it's, we've got this. But after a couple of weeks, they said, you know, it's spreading and there's nothing we can do. And they gave him a pretty poor prognosis. 
And it was unlike when I lost my mother and when I lost my husband, this time I knew what was coming. I knew like, uh, and I just kept thinking, I don't want to go through this again. I've grieved so much. I, I don't know that my heart can take another loss. And that was when I wrote 13 things mentally strong people don't do as an article, but it was really a letter to myself that said, Hey, just don't do these 13 things right now. Cause I thought, you know, there's so much I can't control. There's so many things going on. I can't handle a lengthy to-do list, but if I have just a don't do list, nothing else, if I just don't do these things, I'll be okay. And so I used to read over that list and I found it helpful. And I thought, well, I'll just put it on the internet and maybe somebody else will find it helpful. And then it went viral. 50 million people read that list. And before I knew it, you know, a literary agent called and said, you should write a book. But nobody knew that I had written it as a letter to myself. People thought, you're a therapist. You wrote this because you excel in all this stuff. And I had to eventually come out and say, actually, I wrote it because I too struggle with all 13 of these things. Oh my gosh, that's what a, what a beautiful, authentic way to start a journey like that. I mean, it's just an incredible thing. And, and you know, I just I'm, the reason I also wanted to ask you about the grief things is, as we know, with it, people are going through so much grief at the moment. Those right. people that are losing. So I think this message of yours is also very timely. So I would love you to just unpack a few of those 13 for people now, because I know right now there are viewers watching that are suffering from grief from having lost people in, in COVID-19 or for other reasons, whatever other reasons now. So that'll be, I just, I love the concept so instead of thinking i've got to do this and got to do that you went through the normal process of grieving obviously but you this is how you pulled yourself through by focusing what you shouldn't do very brilliant concept i love it so can you unpack a few for us is that okay absolutely so number one on the list is that mentally strong people don't feel sorry for themselves and you know i really wanted to make it clear that it's okay to be sad and it's okay to grieve but self-pity is different it's when you start to think Oh, my life is so much worse than anybody else's and there's nothing I can do about it. And you sort of become hopeless and helpless and you start to stay stuck because you think there's no use in trying. And, you know, there's this big myth that time heals all wounds or time heals everything. It, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd have people come into my therapy office 20 years later after losing someone or going through a hard time and then say, how much longer do I have to wait And I'd have to talk to them about, well, you could wait a really long time and it's never going to feel better. It's about what you do with your time that matters. For a lot of people, that was really eye opening. And, and so as a therapist, I knew this, but yet it's so tempting to just sit around and feel sorry for myself and think this isn't fair. How come I have to keep losing people? I don't want to go through this, but obviously that wasn't going to be helpful. So I had to figure out how do you how to go through healthy grief. How do I let myself be sad? How do I let myself be angry? How do I allow myself to feel all of those emotions without falling into that self-pity trap? And it was about just making sure that I didn't start to dwell on all the negative or think about everything I didn't have. I practice gratitude. There's still plenty of things in life to be grateful for, even when you feel like things are, are really rough. Same with right now. I know so many of us are tempted to talk about what we don't have. People are saying, I don't have a social life. I don't have a steady income anymore. I, I have to stay home. But we have clean water. We have electricity. We have so many things going on. We and have Zoom to be able to talk to each other through isolation. Exactly. Exactly. So many things right now that, that are positive. And I know it's hard to look at that sometimes, but just changing your mindset and saying, well, Every day I'm going to identify three things I'm grateful for that can change your whole life. 
Mm, and there's so much research on that too, isn't there, Amy? Just showing how that shifts the brain. You know, I, I do clinical trials, and we're looking at the the mind brain connection and the physiology, and it's it's amazing how just that shift in perspective, your brain will respond immediately because your mind controls your brain, and your right. brain just responds. So you know, you can actually you can get your brain and body under control through that. Doesn't mean it's going to be fun. I mean, I'm sure you still had a lot of tears, but just that mind shift gave you strength, didn't it, to start moving those few steps forward. It did. And the, the research on gratitude, I, I feel like it solved so many issues in our lives from sleep issues to, to our health problems to depression, anxiety, those things that can all help combat uh, a lot of the problems that we face. And so just to make that mindset and say, okay, I'm going to be really conscious about identifying what I feel grateful for. And then it wasn't just thinking it, sometimes it was expressing it. How do I reach out to the people who are helping me in my life? How do I let them know that I feel grateful for them. That packs a powerful punch. Not only do you then help them to feel better, but it helps you feel better when you express your gratitude too. Oh, that's lovely. So th- thinking what you're grateful for and expressing your gratitude. So is that the, are they, is that the third and the fourth one? So the, no, are they separate ones? Or that is, it- is to not feel sorry for yourself. Okay. Okay. So those are some of the techniques within that. Exactly. So antidote to, to self-pity. I think that one of the other big ones in the book is actually number two, which is that mentally strong people don't give away their power. Ah, wow. That sounds good. About a lot of the language that we use when we say somebody drives us crazy or somebody makes us mad. And sometimes just switching the language that you use or you say, I have to do this. I have to go to work. I have to go to the grocery store. Almost as if we're victims of of everything in life. And so just flipping the switch and saying, okay, this is a choice. I don't have to go to work. Sure, maybe if you don't show up, you don't get paid. But just recognizing it's a choice makes a huge difference in your life. And deciding that you're in control of how you feel. I have so many people that would come into my therapy office and say, my mother-in-law makes me feel so bad about myself. And so empowering them was really about realizing maybe she's really critical of you, but it doesn't have to affect your self-worth. Here's some things you can do, whether it's setting a boundary or it's about changing the way that you think or not internalizing everything that she says. And I think right now, the language that we use is especially powerful too. If you say, I'm stuck at home versus I'm choosing to stay home to stay safer, there's a big difference in that. Or for people who are saying, you know, this isn't fair because we can't get out and do whatever we want shifting your mindset and saying, well, I'm choosing not to get out there right now because I want to keep myself and other people safe really changes the way you feel. Oh, I can't agree with you more. You know, that whole, it shifts the way that your body handles stress because stress is actually good for you. So what you've actually just described is that whole shift physiologically in our body and brain that happens when we shift stress. Because when you say, oh, I have to stay at home. It's so terrible. I'm isolated. I can't see anyone. You immediately go into toxic stress and 1400 neurophysiological responses work against you and your brain just goes into like insane states. So by you just saying that simple statement of rather say, well, I choose to stay at home to keep myself. That is absolutely brilliant because now suddenly 14 neurophysiological responses work for you instead of against you. So you feel so much better. That's just amazing. Just such a simple flip of the switch, as you say. I love that one. That's really good. You probably have heard me say that no diet or exercise routine will work unless you get your mind and mindset right. That's why I love Noom. Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Noom is not a diet. Rather, it is a tool to help you develop the right mindsets around health, fitness, and food. 
Noom doesn't tell you what to do and what not to do. It teaches you how to look inside your own mind and make better decisions for yourself. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and community of other Noomers, so you'll have all the support you need to empower your change. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. So, Amy, you, you, you made a comment that I thought was very important. And you said that we say, can say things like that person makes me mad or I, they have been so critical or whatever. So someone's putting something on you, but you have to take that. But you, or you can choose not to. You were explaining that. Can you dive a little deeper into that? Because I think that's really important. Because people kind of feel like victims. I think that whatever someone else does to them, they just got to absorb and process. But you don't. You can resist stuff. Right. Sometimes we think, well, so-and-so makes me mad because they, they did something I don't like. But taking back your power is about saying, well, I don't like what that person did, but it's up to me to control my emotions. So you might manage your anger by going for a walk, you take some deep breaths, you do yoga, you meditate, whatever it is. But just owning it makes a big difference to say, I'm in control of how I think, feel, and behave, and it's up to me to decide how I respond to other people. Mm, that's very powerful. You can choose that response. You can choose how you think, feel, and choose in any one moment. That's really, I love that. And then can you give us a couple more of the 13? Sure. Another one that people often want to talk about is that mentally strong people don't worry about pleasing everyone. Mm, that's a great one. People pleasers. It's tough to break that habit. But so many people lose sight of their values. They forget who they are. They end up saying yes to everything and don't end up living the kind of life that they want to live. And the research on people pleasing is pretty profound. That The number one way to drain your willpower is to become a people pleaser. If you have goals and you can't reach them, that's a great place to start looking. Are you doing so much throughout the day to please other people that you aren't working on yourself? Because when you say yes to everybody else, you have nothing left over to say yes to yourself and to work on your own self-discipline. That's so good. That's so true. So there's a, a nice measuring stick that you've mentioned there you know, about the fact that if you're not achieving your own or you feel very dissatisfied with achieving your own goals, are you spending the day trying to please other people? Now you've drained all your energy and we've got limited energy in a day, don't we? I mean, it's that we don't have endless amount of energy exactly. and certain things, are, certain things are very draining. Now you've also written, this is amazing stuff. You've also now written books about doing it for women and for parenting as well in terms of the 13 mentally strong. Can you talk about maybe the one for women first? And then we can talk about the one for parents. Sure. So after my first book came out, I had so many questions from women, especially who said, what does it look like to be a strong woman? And, you know, we have so many icons of mental toughness and they're often elite athletes who are men or they're Navy SEALs who are men. And so women said, well, what does it look like to be a strong woman? And so I wrote this book with that in mind of, okay, how do I give examples of how to be a strong woman in today's world? But I really wanted to look at what are the bad habits that women are more likely to engage in? And it's not because we're, we're bad or we're different, but there's a lot of cultural pressures and societal norms that are different for women. And the way that we, starting from the way that we raise little girls, we treat them with some subtle differences, but it affects how, how we respond to things, how we react. We sort of become programmed to do things in a certain way. And those things drain our mental strength. And so in this book, I really wanted to address those sorts of issues and the, the problems that are tend to be more common among women. It's not to say men don't experience them because 
got a lot of male readers who say, actually, I do a lot of those things too, but they're just more common among women. So for instance, comparing ourselves to other people is a big one. I saw that when I was listening to, listening to some of your stuff, and I thought that's such a good one. I'm so glad you brought that up. And then, you know, and interestingly, there's studies that will show, let's say that you're looking at Instagram. And as a woman, if you see sort of this ideal looking woman, you tend to think, oh, I could never look like that. When a man looks at an ideal looking man on social media, he thinks, oh, I could do that if I wanted to. Isn't that amazing? It is. And wow. So you, you know, the time that we spend on social media and the cultural pressures that women feel, if you read a, a women's magazine, it's probably filled with beauty tips and makeup strategies. And, and even though, you know, women, there's so much pressure, say, to spend doing our hair, putting on makeup, doing those sorts of things, we're busy. And then yet it's filled with productivity tips as if, as if we're not good enough because we aren't able to get everything done in a day. A lot of, lot of pressure in a woman's magazine. You read it for relief and you're actually, actually adding to your burdens. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Quite often that's the case. Gosh, so how do you, how do, what's the antidote? Well, a big one is to just recognize that, that when you start to think of everybody as your competition, to realize that, that they're not. And studies will show if you look at somebody as an opinion holder rather than your direct competitor, then you can learn from that person. Rather than putting yourself down or figuring out, are they above me? Are they below me? You just think, well, that person has something, some sort of knowledge. And it doesn't mean that they're better than you. It just means they have a skill, a set of tools, something that you could learn from. And when you're open to learning from them, then you can benefit from having those people in your life. Mm, okay. So there's a key thing that you said, a great, great, because I'm listening for your, your antidotes, because you've got some profound little statements that you throw in there. And this one there is that you don't have to feel threatened by them because you can learn from them. And I right. love that because that's honestly what we, every other, everyone's so different. So if we could just have the attitude of learning from each other, as opposed to when I've got to be in competition with them, it would make our life so much easier, wouldn't it? And there's right. a lot of research on that too, isn't there? Right, right. And if you just looked around and, and said, I'm going to build a tribe of people who can help me and we can learn and share and not feel like we're taking away from each other. If somebody succeeds, that we can build each other up rather than tear each other down. Everybody wins in the end. Exactly. You know, the brain, I don't know if you, I'm sure you're aware of this, but the, the brain research, specifically, the, you know, the mind brain research, when you make the decision to do what you've just described, it actually puts the brain into a very high state of intelligence. So the different energy waves in the brain, the frequency waves flow differently when you're in that mind state. So that what it really does work. Your brain is designed to respond to actually supporting others, not having jealousy and envy, which damages the brain, but actually having, doing what you've just described, that antidote, that celebrating someone else, that learning from someone else increases your own intelligence. And obviously, if your own intelligence increases, you function at another level. Do you think, Amy, do you think it's got something to do with the society's norms of what success is for not only just women women and men, but specifically there's these very clear general societal requirements for success, you know, money, recognition, likes on Instagram, you know. But for a woman, I think there's a few others that are specific to women and a few that are specific to men. Do you think that it's, it's, it's that measuring stick that we have to break down that'll maybe free us? I don't know, just a thought? I do. You know, I think I always encourage everybody to create their own definition of success. You know, when you're 90 years old, what will you look back on your life and be proud of versus, you know, do you, will it matter how many Instagram likes you got? Will it matter how much you weighed? Will it matter how, how much money you had in the bank? Or do you measure it some other way? And so I think if we just all spent a little more time thinking about our values, what's really important to us and how we personally define success, we wouldn't be so threatened by other people. 
Mm, I love that. I really love that. If you if you if you define your success, you wouldn't be so threatened by other people. Okay, so let's talk about parenting now. I know you you had a foster you fostered a child for a while. Do you have your own children now? Do you? I was a foster parent most of my adult. That's amazing. That's that's a huge thing. uh, They ended up. Wow. I was a because they knew I was a therapist and I was a therapeutic foster parent. So I was sort of the end of the road for the kids that they weren't sure if they could be adoptable. They were sort of deciding whether to let them be adopted or put them in a group home or uh, some of them were probably headed towards residential facilities. So they said, see what you can do with them. And so my work with with sort of the kids that had the biggest behavior problems or the biggest emotional problems. And my job was to try to make sure that they could be adoptable by the time that they moved on from, from my place. And I'm thrilled to say that every kid before they left my place was available for adoption. Amy, that is an amazing thing, and I take my hat off to you because that is that's very powerful. So, how many children, girls did you did you foster in your in this time period? Yeah, it's hard to say. I had some that were short term. I had some that would I did respite care for some just when their normal caregivers needed a weekend or a week break. So I don't know altogether. I've never never counted how many because there were some boys in there too. There were a few younger kids here and there. So hard to say how many over the years. So did you, did they come and live with you in your home and you did the whole mothering thing? They did. Yeah. So, you know, it was strange. Sometimes I'd get a phone call at five o'clock in the afternoon and they'd say, can, can you take this kid today? And I'd come home from work and there'd be a kid, you know, meeting me there and they've got their bag of stuff and they moved in that day. Gosh, Amy, that is the most, I'm so, that's, um, it's incredible what you've done. How did you handle that? What were your mentally strong tips in that process? You know, it was, couldn't have been easy to be bonding with the kids and then or then coming in with all their behavioral issues. You have to be a therapist 24-7 and a mother. And how did you do it? Yeah, it was tough. My hat is off to parents for sure. And to know that, that they weren't going to stay with me forever. So, but yet you still want to bond with them. But to know that, you know, my, I wasn't setting out to, to adopt them forever. My job was to get them ready for their forever home. And so it was hard. It was, you know, as far as emotionally to say, how do I how do I work with you? I'm not your therapist. I'm your foster mom. So it was sort of like wearing a different hat because I had to be more nurturing and I had to take care of them and be discipline roles and that sort of a thing. But it was so, it was just, I mean, incredible. I learned so much from them and I'm just grateful that I had the experience and the opportunity to do that in my life. I feel like it definitely helped me in so many ways as a human being, just what I learned from these kids who have gone through so much at such a young age. I think I learned a lot about mental strength just from them. Oh, that's beautiful. And how long would they stay with you? They're obviously different time periods, but like a week, month, year? Or... Yeah, so probably six months, somewhere around there usually. Wow. And did you have more than one at a time? So they licensed, I lived in a big home at the time when I first started doing it. So they licensed me for six kids, which I said, no, 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 six is way too many. <laughs> That's a lot. I have four kids and yeah, six would be a lot. <laughs> right. And especially, you know, after I was widowed, I had to decide, do I want to have, how many kids can I handle as a, as a single mom? So I had two was usually the most I ever had, maybe three short term basis, but it was usually just two. Wow. Well, I really take my hat off to you. That's incredible. So you said something beautiful there that you learned so much from these kids. And I can resi- resonate with that. I have four four kids, as I mentioned, and they're all in their 20s now. But I have, I always say, the, I've got all these degrees, but I learned most from 
having four children and just listening to them. And I always tell, I tell my, when I was still practicing, I always, always tell my parents and I do it when I, like you, I go around the place talking and all that. I always say, listen to your kids because they tell you so much. And you, you, it's so natural as an adult and as a parent to want to fix or give the advice. But it's so good to also keep quiet and say, what do you think? Give me your advice. Right. They're so insightful. They're brilliant. I don't know how anyone can't see that, how brilliant kids are and how much we can learn from them. So that's just my five cents. So obviously your experience stimulated the 13 mentally strong tips of parenting or however you've written, I think I've written mentally strong, whatever the exact title of the book is. So tell, tell me a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about that with parenting. Sure. So, you know, again, after my first book came out, I had so many parents say, how do I teach this to my kids? And so many readers that said, if only I had learned this sooner. So I wrote 13 things mentally strong parents don't do as a way to say, how do you, how do you get out of, out of your own way? How do you make sure that your kids are learning? And so, for example, one of the things that mentally strong parents don't do is that they don't shield their kids from pain. It's mm, so I love it. Say that again. That mentally strong parents don't shield their kids from pain. That's so good. You know, it's so hard to see your kid in pain, whether they get rejected or they don't make the team or they're struggling in school. It's just natural that we want to rush in and rescue them and save them and help them and, and make them feel better. But when we do that, we rob them of an opportunity to practice using their coping skills. We rob them of the opportunity to learn how strong they are. So a much better message is to say, I know this is tough, but I know that you're a strong kid who can handle it. And then you guide them rather than shield them. And you just say, this is how to deal with it. And that doesn't mean we need to expose kids to traumatic things just to toughen them up. But on the other hand, you can, you can teach them. There's plenty of real life opportunities where you can teach kids, well, here are some of the things going on. This is how you deal with it. And then we can teach them skills so that when they become adults, they already they have confidence. Okay, I can handle the challenges that come my way. Mm, that's so important because you definitely in this day and age, you get your sort of parent who wraps a child in you know bubble wrap and doesn't want them to experience anything and is jumping in there, solving all the problems and doing all the homework and shield. But they, 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 they crash when they have to go out into life, don't they? I mean, it's just really, yeah, that's really good. Can you give us a couple more tips? Sure. Another one is about not being responsible for your kids' emotions. Because again, so I think good. there's too much pressure on parents to raise happy kids. And we feel like if my kid is sad, it's my fault. If they're anxious, then there's something wrong. So we run in and we try to save them from that. So if they're sad, we cheer them up. When they're angry, we calm them down. But we don't teach them how to do those things for themselves. And you know, there's this startling study where they interview these college kids and say, are you prepared for college? The vast majority of them said academically, absolutely, but emotionally not, but they felt like, you know, I don't know how to deal with loneliness. I don't know how to deal with anxiety. I don't know how to deal with being sad. If their parents aren't right there, then they don't know what to do. And so I think we're doing kids a huge disservice if we don't teach them, how do you handle your emotions when I'm not here to, to do it for you? Sometimes it's just so hard to get all the essential nutrients and vitamins your brain and body needs. That's why supplements can be a great option, but there are just so many out there and it can be confusing and overwhelming. Trust me, I know. So I did some research. Well, actually, a lot of research, because that's what I do. And I came across Ritual. Ritual is the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. For me personally, 
I love how Ritual values transparency. For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. It's so important for me to know what I am putting into my body. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to start your ritual today. The links will be in the show notes as well. Okay, so that's probably one of the most important things. You've said so many important things today, but that's so important. And if I just look at the work that I do, you've just identified a, a core issue around why people battle so much as adults. You know, yeah. it's because it's, this is something we should be teaching children from when they're in school, when they're, you know, it's at school to be taught, when they are lit, young as, as a young child in a home. Can you give a few little examples of how to do that? Because I know that we have a lot of parents, a lot of my viewers are parents, and I know they're saying, okay, how? How do I teach my child how to deal with their emotions? So they have a breakup with a boyfriend or they have they get bullied at school or they get shouted at by their teacher or whatever. So a really easy one is to just teach kids how do you identify and label your emotion. Tons of research that says just saying out loud, I'm anxious, I'm sad, I'm scared. It takes a lot of the sting out of those feelings. Kids, a lot of them don't have the vocabulary. They don't know how they're feeling. So if you start just using feeling words in everyday language from a young age, that helps. And then you can ask your kids, how are you feeling right now? Check in with them. Help, help them identify it. A kid who can say, gosh, I'm really anxious, but this is a good thing for me. Maybe I'm going to present a speech in class. I'm anxious, but that's an okay kind of anxiety to face. Versus when their friend dares them to do something dangerous and they feel anxiety, they need to recognize Ooh, I have anxiety right now because this is a bad idea. And so if we start talking more about feelings, kids will learn from it. And then to teach them, what are some skills? So when you had a bad day at school, how do you cheer yourself up when you get home? An easy way to do that is sit down and make a list with your child. When you come home from school and you're in a really good mood, what are the top 10 things you like to do? I listen to happy music. I call my friends. I go outside and play, whatever it is. But that's your mood booster list. So when you come home from school and you're in a bad mood, Maybe you just feel like sitting on the couch and not doing anything, but that will keep you stuck. So go over to your mood booster list and pick something off the list and do it. Even though you don't feel like doing it right now, once you do those things, it will help you feel happier. I love that. That's such a practical, simple, easy thing to do. It's not so you don't need to, you know, you don't need to be a brain scientist to be able to do that. That's a really simple, practical tip and kids will really resonate with that. Just making that list and then, and if they don't want to do that, there's a choice of 10. There's something there that right. you can encourage them to start doing and then it starts shifting how they function. That's amazing. Can you talk and give us another tip? So another one is, you know, when it comes to anger, a lot of us don't know how do you teach kids how to calm themselves down. So we'd say to them, That's calm good. down. Or, or, you know, we try Worst to- thing, isn't it? Isn't that the worst thing to say to someone when they're angry, calm down. Right, I mean, that's right. like, ah, now I'm even more mad than before. <laughs> so similar to the mood boosters, you can help kids create a calm down kit. And maybe it's a box and you just put stuff in it like crayons in a coloring book, or maybe it's a, a journal and they can write or they can draw or it's soothing music, something that smells good, scented lotion, something that really engages their senses. But you come up with this kit together, get their input on what they think would work. And you put it in a shoebox. And you put it somewhere handy. And when your kid's upset, rather than saying, calm down, or you have to get a hold of yourself, you can just say, why don't you go do something from your calm down kit? 
And the goal is that after a while, your child will start to recognize when they're starting to get angry and frustrated and they won't have to turn to you for help. They can then eventually just go get their calm down kit themselves and figure out, okay, when I'm really anxious, when I'm starting to get really frustrated, these are the kinds of things that bring my mood back down. And it's about trial and error and practice. And they might find, you know, coloring really works for me. So that's something I'm going to do. Or maybe they find if I go outside and I run around for a few minutes, that burns off all of the anger and then I feel better. But to look at it as a bunch of experiments, let them think, okay, you're a scientist and your job is to figure out what kinds of things work best for you and help them come up with ideas, but make sure they give you input too. And then just encourage them to experiment until you figure out what works the best. That's beautiful. So you're teaching them to think basically, think through issues as opposed to here's the problem, you the fixer, mom and dad, mom and dad. You're teaching them, okay, this is the problem. But if I go to my mom and dad, they're going to help me think through the solution. So then that goes through into adulthood. So that thinking, feeling, choosing process of experimentation, mm-hmm. the little the little scientist that you're stimulating, we need to teach it from young. That's so incredible because a very young child, as you know, can't doesn't have the, ling- the linguistics to be able to explain how they feel. But then having the, the coloring pencil, or the Lego blocks or something physical to be able to translate that. But then also with you modeling, because that's what I'm hearing you say, you kind of model some samples and then let them take that and, and grow with it. Because very often if we stimulate it, isn't that the correct thing that when we stimulate it with one thing, we think of a lot of other ideas that are then right. suited to how we see the world kind of thing. But we've got to provide that as opposed to this dead end. It's almost like a dead end. If you solve your child's anger, you solve your child's emotions, or if you allow your child's pain, absorb your child's pain, I'm thinking, of adult children who are trying to deal with stuff. You want to listen and help them think through, but you don't want to try and take that pain into you and then like away from them. You don't want to, you can't suck it out of them and put it in you and hope they feel better. Does that make sense? Is exactly. that what you is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically exactly is to just make sure that we're giving giving kids the tools and skills that they need so that they can say, okay, when I have a, an emotional issue, I can, I can try to address how I feel about the problem. When I have another problem that I can solve, I've got the skills and tools I need to solve the problem. And then we want them to be confident enough to know, okay, when I face a challenge, whether it's a, a really tough breakup someday or some sort of economic crisis, I can handle it. Whether they're 30, 40 years old, they still know, all right, my parents trusted me when I was six to handle little things. So now I know as an adult, I have the strength I need to get through this too. Oh, that's so good. Can I, I'm going to, I'd love to ask you a question related to this with a lot of your graduate students, students now, people, people in their 20s and 22, 23 that have just finished college or have just started a job and now COVID's thrown that whole, their dreams and hopes into this flux. And there is, because as you, I'm sure you've seen in the media and it's just, we're getting a lot of those kind of questions as well with what, what we do. How would you re- advise someone who's at, at, at that stage in their life to have hope and, and to manage their sort of emotions in this time based on what you you've just said, the sort of toolkit idea, because maybe they've never had that toolkit. You know, there's a good chance a lot of them haven't, and now they really are stuck. Right. So I think it's a good time to just figure out, okay, well, what am I, how am I feeling? Are you anxious? Are you angry at the situation? Are you just frustrated? You know, the things you're missing out on. I know college students are missing out on graduation, say, or they missed out on their whole last semester of being able to, to finish school, that sort of a thing. So just label your feelings. Great time to do that. Take a look at what are you anxious about? Is it the financial aspect? Is it just the uncertainty? Is it you know, just anxious about the future of the job market? Figure out what can you problem solve? What kinds of problems can you actually tackle? So right now, it might be a matter of saying, I'm going to figure out how to delay my student loans, or it's a matter of saying, I'm going to use this time as productive as I can to, to create a resume that is pretty good so that when this is all over and I start applying for jobs, I have a better chance of getting it. So to take some kind of action right now, 
And then I think when you catch yourself going down those trails of this is horrible, it's awful, it's catastrophic, a good thing to do is argue the opposite. Say, well, what are some reasons maybe why that this will actually be helpful? Maybe the job market's changing, but it doesn't have to be for the worse. Or maybe this will lead me down a new career path. Say, well, what would I say to a friend? If your friend came to you and said, this is awful, horrible, I can't stand it, you probably have some really nice words. Well, if you give yourself that same advice, it can go a long way to changing your mindset. Mm, that's very, very good. And there's also, just taking that one step further, there's also a lot of feeling amongst the youth at the moment that, you know, this is like, life is terrible. I mean, this just look at this, this one disaster after another happens. I had a couple of these conversations with your millennials and your younger, sort of around that age group from 18 to sort of 25. Life is terrible and it's always been bad and mankind just keep messing up all the time. And what's the point of it all? What advice would you give to someone who throws that in your face? Because <laughs> I'm sure you got a lot of that with your foster kids. That's why I was thinking of that question. Right. So I think, okay, well, that's one way to look at the situation, but what's another way to look at it? And again, it goes back to looking at the good in the world. What do you have to be grateful for? And arguing the opposite. What might somebody say if they thought that this was a great time on the universe? Or if somebody says a lot of good things happen too, what would they be arguing? And just flipping that switch and saying, well, there's that's one way to look at it, but there's a million more. What other ways could I look at it? How else might I argue this? It goes back to what would I say to a friend who had this problem? But just really recognizing that thinking that way isn't going to be helpful. So you have other options. You don't have to think that way. I think that's lovely. So to summarize what you said, let me have I've understood you correctly. You you have other options. So you don't have to think that way, number one, because it makes you feel awful. And then number two, you can argue against that. You can actually think of, okay, well, this is how I'm feeling. Even if I don't feel the opposite, what is the opposite argument? Because maybe as you start talking about the opposite argument, your feelings will come, will align. Generally, they do. And then to give advice to yourself as though you're giving someone else advice. So those are three little strategies that I understand you correctly. You got in it. Terms of- <laughs> Perfect. Oh, well, that's, I love this. Okay, Amy, what are, you, what are your concerns about maybe what's going on in the wellness industry out there? Because it's massive at the moment, the self-help wellness industry. Do you have any concerns and do you have any sort of excitement about what's happening, both ends of the scale? Or maybe- yeah, I guess you know, my concern is that a lot of people are more isolated than usual. So for people that were already lonely, I think this is compounding their, their loneliness. But on the bright side, I feel like there's a lot that has been done in terms of the stigma of depression, of anxiety, where people are talking about it. And there's, you know, online therapy is more available now than it ever has been. And so people who have hesitated in the past to contact an online therapist right now, it's a great time to do it. And I think more people are feeling comfortable about doing that. Which is great. Yeah. And it's become, I think a lot of therapists had to get comfortable with that too, because it's really become, I think every single therapist out there is now literally almost every therapist is doing it online or has got coaching courses or something to help people. So there's more help now. So you've moved into an era of people actually connecting and, and yeah, really making and being real, ready to face the issues. Any last pearl of wisdom that you'd like to tell our listeners? It's been wonderful what you've said so far. Everything's been so valuable. Any last comment? Yeah, I would just say you're stronger than you think. Your brain will sometimes underestimate you or doubt you, but just because you think it doesn't make it true. And one of my favorite strategies is just challenge your brain. When your brain says you can't do something, say challenge, accept it, and go try to do it anyway. And you can train your brain to see you differently after a while and to recognize that you're more capable and competent than your brain will give you credit for. Oh, I love that. That's uh, that's very wise advice. Wise and real advice. I love that. Amy, how can people get hold of you and find find you? Uh, the best place is my website, which is Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensed clinical social worker.com. 
Perfect. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And thank you for your time. It's been so interesting, so practical. And thank you for doing it on a sailboat. I've never interviewed someone on a sailboat before. It's beautiful. <laughs> I, I heard a little bit of the wind in the background. It's so lovely. Thank you. Well, we'll enjoy it. And thank you so much for your time and stay safe. I will. You as well. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.